Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back again to the Retail Trader's Guide to Systematic Trend Following. Sam is here. I am here. The cold weather is here at both both our locales. And uh, <laughs> we are going to move on from our last discussion where we were kind of talking about uh, position sizing and stops, which is kind of talking about risk on the individual trade level. And we're going to kind of roll that into talking about risk on the portfolio level. So if you have a collection of trades together, um, what that means kind of for your overall portfolio, um, kind of from a day-to-day -day volatility, um, and start talking a little bit about correlation where you have maybe two two open trades that are kind of moving together and what that kind of means for your risk. Um, so I guess the best place to start is um, to talk about maybe we were talking about before we started here, we were kind of talking about currencies and how um, we both trade a lot of the dollar crosses and how that kind of means that when you have these trades on, they tend to move together, especially if the dollar is the kind of driving factor, right? So you may trade like the Euro and the Aussie and the, you know, the Canadian dollar, the British pound, and all those things, those individual countries and the individual central banks and the individual economies of those countries can, tie, can tend to push the movement in those currencies. But the other side is you've got the U.S. dollar, um, you know, the biggest economy in the world. And when there's dollar-specific news, that tends to move and move all of those at one time. Agreed. Your thought, your thoughts. You had some good ones when we were talking before. Just how you tend to think about it. So. Um, yeah. So maybe I'll try to show a. Um, I'll pull up a chart just to show it a bit. You see that Aussie chart? Yeah. Go ahead and close my window yeah. out there. Get me out of the way. There we go. So. The way that I think about this, and this is to me a like a stepping stone or an initial thought process to go through before you look at cross asset or asset class um, correlations. But if you're trading the the dollar and the common crosses, and I'm looking at spot forex, but the Aussie dollar, the euro dollar, the pound, New Zealand CAD. Swiss franc, the yen. So that's seven different markets right there. And it's not uncommon for um, trend followers and CTAs and, and us to trade all of those and maybe add in some emerging um, currencies like the Chinese yuan or the lira or the Mexican peso. So we'll stick with that since it's 10 markets that I um, just mentioned there. And so those all have the dollar tied to them since a currency is always a pair. It's always one currency against, against another. But in all 10 of those cases, uh, the dollar is part of the asset itself. And so the thought process there is that if, in this case, you're short Aussie dollar here, uh, and it's still short. So you're short Australian dollar, long U.S. dollar. 
And it's possible that you could be long uh, all 10 of those asset assets that I mentioned that are dollar-based. Those could all be long um, the dollar. And so in this case, uh, this number down here, this first one, is the 4.5 ATR um, in pips or ticks for the market. So 230 pips would be 4.5 ATRs, and that's a common uh, spot for me to place uh, an initial stop loss, and that would be up here. So if I was risking 1% uh, from here to the stop at 4.5 ATRs, then this would be 1% 1, 1 of movement. And so if I have... going to be a bad number, but that means 1% divided by the 4.5. So a standard movement would be 22 basis points in the day because 4.5 ATRs on the daily. So I'm just trying to normalize the risk in terms of movement in a market. So based on the current volatility, the standard uh, contribution from this asset at this moment in time would be about 22 basis points daily. Um, and so if you have $10-based uh, assets, then this would be 22 basis points times 10 or 2.22%. So we'll just say 2.2%. So by having $10-based uh, assets in your portfolio and giving them 1% risk 4.5 ATRs away, your standard volatility or contribution to the portfolio for all 10 of those if they were on which can definitely happen and all 10 of them could be long the dollar your expected contribution of just dollar based currency crosses crosses are is 2.2 percent on a daily basis so sometimes though they won't move all together sometimes they will so we're just talking about the extreme case here um sort of as Seth mentioned before, if it's a dollar-based move, then you would expect a standard day, it would be 2.2%. Now, what if it moved more than its standard volatility in a day or had a continued move against you, such as this, which happened over, I guess, a month? Well, if it's 230 pips at... 1%. This moved about 226. So just for ease sake, we'll round up and say that that moved back about 4.5 ATRs, our initial ATRs, our initial risks. So this would be a 1% um, total move in that market. If, if you had a retracement like this across all 10 of those positions, just in this time, just a simple retracement, and then it continued lower. If this was dollar-based and this retracement happened on all 10, you would have the 1% um, move multiplied by 10. So that would be a 10% move in your portfolio just in these 10 dollar-based assets because they all happen to retrace at the same time. So you've taken... Um, something that moves 22 basis points on an average daily basis. Um, you have 10 markets that are based on the dollar, and then you get a counter move against the trend temporarily like this, which is nothing extreme, nothing out of the ordinary. You don't see any huge 
daily moves like back here in January where there was the uh, flash crash on the uh, Aussie and other assets. But this is just a standard retracement. Then it pushes down lower. It does something similar again. And, you know, this is normal fluctuation. So this pullback, if across 10 assets, like I said, would have been 10% against your account and nothing, nothing out of the ordinary happened. The position didn't even get stopped out. You still want to stay long. Um, but you're exposing yourself to this much ongoing volatility, whether you um, initially realize it or not. So notice that I haven't mentioned anything about correlations and because we're starting very simply in talking about, we know that all of these currency pairs are tied to the dollar. So if the dollar is the, the main driver over this month, then it certainly can happen that the counter trend move will happen in all 10 of those currency pairs that you have. And so you'd lose 10% in your account across your 10 currency pairs. Now, maybe some of the other positions picked up the the slack, um, and hopefully they did, but that's the type of thing that you need to be thinking about when you expose yourself to sort of single asset or single event risk that, um, you don't need to get into complex math or changing things like correlation. You just think about what are the obvious things that I that I have within the uh, assets that are in my portfolio and how can they contribute to to moves, whether they're up or down. We're talking about this from the um, sort of the negative sense and that it's a move against you, but uh, even moves for you that can cause you to increase positions because you've had a huge increase in your account uh, value that affect future positions can can cause things to um, get out of whack. And so these types of things can play with the positive edge of the strategy that you have because it's affecting the account equity. So um, perhaps your future positions are, uh, you have you had this 10% loss, so your future positions are smaller than they would otherwise be. Um, those are future topics that we'll get into in terms of account equity and position sizing based on that and how you might think about open equity versus closed equity. Um, but you'll notice that none of these actually hit my stop as well. So if I was down here, my my stop is about 270 pips away and my initial risk was 230 and that was 1%. So 270 divided by 230. Now my open risk to stop on this trade is 1.17%. So there's been potentially some expansion in volatility. Um, actually, it went down in volatility, but this trailing stop is about two times the distance away than the initial stop for me. So I have this open um, this open risk to, to uh, manage these positions. So if I'm looking at 1.17 open risk on this, it's possible that the other ten dollar base or other nine dollar based ones are also at this level. So, you've now gone to eleven point seven um, open risk in dollar based assets. And so, um, that's why it's important to understand sort of how your what your initial risk to stop is, what your ongoing <laughs> trailing stop method is. Is it just going to be the same distance as your uh, initial stop, is it going to be a little looser to provide some room to move as positions move? 
are you going to adjust positions um, if volatility changes throughout the trade? So right here was 230 pips for 4.5 ATRs. This one's pretty stable. Um, most times people won't add to positions that only reduce. So if volatility got up to like 250, 260, then you re reduce the size of this trade um, to reflect current volatility. All of these factor into the choices that you may make, may want to make, may be forced to make, um, depending on how you structure initial uh, risk based on your initial stop, your ongoing um, open position risk based on um, current volatility and um, price to stop, and also direct, direct assets that certainly have a common factor, such as they're all dollar currency pairs. Um, you might think of all equities in the same manner, manner as well, since um, equities have correlated more towards uh, one across the world in the last decade, especially when things are going um, down. So this is, to me, the stepping stone of thinking about positions within a portfolio before I even start to think about how closely are these currency pairs uh, correlated with uh, potentially like the euro yen or the Aussie yen or something that doesn't include the dollar at all or maybe other commodities or things like that if there happen to be correlations there. So I tend to think of it in phases. What What is the profile of risk in open equity and open volatility for a position? What is it for... Um, assets within my portfolio that have a direct element within their calculation, such as the dollar for currency uh, pairs that are that all have the dollar in them. And then thirdly, looking at cross-asset and cross-asset um, class or uh, correlations. So sort of all three of those stepping stones into thinking about uh, risk and volatility and how volatility can um, affect your system and also affect the sizes of future positions that you put on. Um, since most people are putting on position sizes based on um, current account equity, um, if you have this, this sort of pullback right here and you've experienced a 10% loss, that means positions from this point forward in all the assets that you trade uh, will now be lower because your account equity at this point is less than it was at this point, um, and then let's say they all did have that run, this run like this, you'd be getting this this positive run for you with a short trade. It continues down further with a lower position size um, because of your account equity. So that gets into how you adjust, how you factor in um, your account size when you put on your initial risk and what it's based from. Um, so all of these things lead into to one one into the other. Um, but it's good to think about it. And currencies are the easiest way because they're the most obvious uh, single single asset or single market risk because we know which ones are directly dominated in dollars or associated with the dollar and which ones aren't. So once you wrap your head around doing this analysis and looking at things from the currencies, then you can think about other asset, asset classes uh, and then getting into doing sort of a correlation study within groups and, and different bundles within the portfolio and then adjusting the weight down there.
So if you looked at your initial risk and your open risk and all the dollar-based assets that you're trading and you see a number that um, your open risk to stop would be more than you'd want if the dollar just moved from here to my stop within a day or a couple of days, that certainly could happen and I'd be exposing myself to, um, based on the example earlier, a quick 11% loss just because something happened to the dollar. Um, and we want to protect ourselves against the unknown, especially when it's an obvious single driver that, that we can at least account for and think about without getting into um, really any math at all, let alone complex math. So that's my initial thought on sort of single asset risk and or volatility uh, within the overall portfolio. Yeah, agreed. And I think um, another big area where people need to really put some thought into this is with stocks, too. Um, if you're considering yourself to be diversified just because you hold, um, you know, a handful of different stock ETFs or, um, you know, single stocks are a little bit better. Um, I've got something I can show. Um Real quick, I did a, a um, when I came back from the live event, I started doing a little bit of looking at um, correlation between equities because I was trying to figure out if it was going to be worth my while to start trading, um, looking into trading single stocks because, you know, Jerry is such a big advocate of that. Mm. Um, but these are the, um, these are the six equity futures contracts that I trade. Um, this is Chinese, Japanese, the U.S. This is a REIT, a U.S. real estate REIT um, equity index. This is India and Europe. And my thinking here was it's globally diversified. Um, I have all the big areas covered with this. And so the first thing I thought, I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I could look to see if it would help to trade some of this industry sector um, ETFs, you know, like the spider funds. Mm -hmm. Turns out, not really. They're pretty highly correlated to each other as a portfolio. And I would guess if you take, this is the energy ETF, I would guess if you take this out, this is going to go up to 0.8 or higher, which means you're basically yeah. trading all the same product, right? And so um, just as a third level of interest to this, I decided to just pick one well-known stock that I knew that was in each one of these um, individual funds and it turns out that's a lot better to do. Um, that gets you down to kind of a, a moderately correlated level. Um, so it looks like initially the single stock idea is probably a good way to get diversified more so than just trading a handful of ETFs. And what always blows my mind when I look to see the markets that big CTAs are trading, almost all of them trade the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Russell and the Dow. And I'm like, what, what, why, like, what's the point of that? They all really move together. You know, the Russell is maybe one that's going to be a little bit different. Um, but I think for big CTAs, that's probably more a liquidity thing than it is anything else. Maybe they, they consider U.S. or U.S. stocks to be one return driver. So they just split that one, risk bet up between the, the four different contracts just to give it a little bit of variation. 
Um, but I would just caution people that are just getting into looking at trend following. They're probably most comfortable with stocks and they're probably going to be most comfortable trading stocks from the get go. And that was my experience. When I first started looking at the different futures markets I could trade, I put every single liquid stock contract in, into my portfolio, not to trade, but just to watch. Just because I kind of right. felt like I knew how equities acted because I had traded cash equities in the past. But it's really important to have the different return drivers in there. You want the currencies, you want the commodities, you want the bonds, and you want a little bit of everything, not a lot of anything, is my my kind of initial thought. Like really spread it out. And it's uncomfortable at first. Like when you when if I would imagine if most people look at my position sheet right now and they see I've got two or three stock positions, but then I've got sugar, coffee, you know, rubber, all these weird commodity markets that people aren't used to looking at. But that's what you want, because that's stuff that moves differently from each other. And so you give your system as many different individual bets as you can. And that's how the edge works over time, right? And it also works if you get a bunch of correlated bets that all go in your direction. But the bad thing is when you have a bunch of correlated bets that you get stopped out on and you lose the 10% in a month, like you talked about, which is... Um, which is easy to happen if you if you get too many bets to look like each other. So, yeah, and and using the sort of that overall correlation number at the top. In this case, it's 0.5, and it's uh, slightly moderate. So that's that aggregated um, average correlation is kind of how you would think about that that number looking at all those and then just getting the simple average across all of them. Um, when you talk about the, I think you mentioned the four indices there, whether it was four or five, it doesn't really matter, but if you had four indices, and they were all, and they were all perfectly correlated. Um, then most people would say, if you're going to trade them all, then it would be one fourth. Um, so trade them all at point at 25% of what the standard level is. If if the aggregated correlation of all of them were 0.9, that number still works the same, right? So if it was maybe it had some slight benefit, we'll use 0.8 because 0.9 is a little too close to, to 1. But if you did 4 times 0.8 and got 3.2, 1 divided by 3.2, or the inverse of... Um, What am I trying to say? Um, I get what you're saying. Like, there's definitely a benefit to trading four yeah, versus it's just one. The, the factor of the factor of three point two, since there's some diversification there, would be above twenty five percent. So it might be about thirty thirty percent. Yeah, for each instead of twenty five. So you could you could maybe get away. And so that's how I would initially think about correlations and um, the the starting weighting that I get or the reduced weighting that I would give a market 
if they're highly correlated to something else and say, okay, what should the, how can I use the correlation to, to discount or um, reduce the position size of each of these because they're highly correlated. I don't want to have four positions that are the same. That's how you could think about the correlations and turn it into a, a fraction across the, the group um, to get those numbers. And so um, in a similar way, that's what I've done with the, the currencies that I traded since I trade spot currencies. So I have, I trade 30 different spot Forex markets and I think exactly 15 of them include the dollar. So, and the next best ones are the other majors like the Euro and the pound against the other seven majors themselves. So the single most common uh, total number that the Euro is a direct factor in is about seven markets. And the single biggest, uh, if you take up all the assets that the dollar is part of is 15. So there's twice as many positions that I have in the currency area that include the dollar as part of the pair. Um, so in just thinking about currencies themselves and specific risk given to um, a dollar-based pair or a dollar-associated market and the, the euro, that means that anything that's dollar-based is automatically half the size than the standard number because it has twice as many positions that are based on the dollar as the other main currencies within the currency set of 30 markets. So right there, I'm already starting with dollar-based currencies are half. And then you could then you could do further assessment on sort of the the correlations across different subgroups or or the the majors themselves. Those are more correlated than the um, exotics or non-majors, um, just because they're they get more volume and activity. And you could do further assessment there. But right off the top, that's the initial assessment I do. What's the easiest thing to identify that definitely can move? these things and it goes back to the direct components that we talked about before so automatically my dollar based currencies are half half the size of the others because i have twice as many markets um so that's how you feed into sort of the logic based associations relationships single events that can move um, a position as well as getting into cross correlations with sort of things of itself and also the things that you mentioned uh, in the three examples that you showed, whether it's indices globally or single stocks and things like that. So kind of, that's how you build on top of each other and just keep looking at components and subcomponents of your overall portfolio and identifying areas that um, can overtake portfolios in certain events and not even, and not even really extreme events either. These can just be standard moves that are that are just standard volatility and moving in your portfolio that may be unpleasant or you may not expect and wonder why your why your account is fluctuating differently than you were expecting or hoping, especially when you flip through just your charts and your current positions and it looks like it shouldn't be or you felt like it was more uncorrelated than it was. Yeah. And it's hard to know um, I think it's hard to know how much volatility you can take until you experience it. Because it's one thing to look at a back test and say, you know, my 
my system back tested at 25% annual wall. I don't think that means a lot to a lot of people, but as soon as you live through a week that you have a lot of trends that you're in that are reversing and you feel what that, that effect feels like, it's, it's hard to really know how much you can put up with. So I think it's probably best to yeah. start slow and build, build your way up rather than figuring out how much return you want and then targeting a certain level of volatility before you, before you trade, right? You got to kind of work your way up to it. Yeah. And I think there's, so there's one thing between like volatility that you experience that feels like it's, um, I don't want to say max volatility, but somewhere close to that because you, you look at, uh, you look at the volatility or the drawdown that you've had and you can see that, um, an overwhelming number of positions in different uh, asset classes and markets that aren't usually correlated just happen to have this spurt of higher correlation and happen to go against you. That's kind of approaching what would be the max volatility that you would expect to experience that you may have seen if you ran back tests. The concerning level of realized volatility is when you you get close to that expected sort of max volatility level and it was all due to like currency based moves that were that went against each other and didn't necessarily get realized in other asset classes because that would be a signal that in the future this could happen again and those other asset classes could also happen to move against me as well which means this drawdown this volatility movement is going to be bigger and definitely the max volatility that I'm hoping that I'm going to be around is nowhere near what I'm, what I'm thinking because this wasn't a result of 75% of your positions. It was only a result of 30 or 50%. So that would be a flag that like, while this drawdown and this volatility sucked, if you saw what contributed to it, you might realize, oh, it could have gotten much worse. So I need to, I better scale back now or change my weightings and, and think about things differently. And I got yeah. to that point sort of earlier this year with, with just with currencies, because while I felt like the, the 30 that I, that I had were well diversified and they're weighted, it's still, it's still when those things started running together negatively, it still was contributing to too much downside volatility when I think about the other things in there that could have been doing this at the same time and it could have been twice as bad. Um, so one thing is experiencing that that drawdown and that volatility that is painful. The second is is realizing that it could be 50 to 100 percent worse. Um, yeah. That would be a call. That would be the call to action. I think I think bonds have probably done that to a lot of people in the last couple of months. Um, I had, so I was long, this was probably in early September. I was long bonds in Japan, Australia, um, Europe and the U S and I got stopped out of six out of seven of the positions in one day. So that's like across the whole yield curve too. That's from Euro dollar, which is a 90 day bond all the way to, um, 
10-year JGB, and all of them went against me on the same day. And they were all they all ended up being positive trades. You know, they were still profitable trades, but I gave back probably half of the open gain in the matter of about two weeks and then was stopped out of all of them in one day, which, I mean, and, you know, that's supposed to be uncorrelated. You know, I, probably 20 years ago, bonds didn't move right. that way, right? Because you had, you didn't have coordinated central bank activity or whatever, whatever you blame it on now. Um, and the same thing with stocks, like stocks tend to move a lot more together than they used to. Um, so, and the bad, really the bad thing is, I think the worst time for me was I think January of 2018, um, when stocks first like broke the uptrend, bonds broke the downtrend and the dollar all like reversed at the same time. And right. it, I mean, it, it was like all three of them happened within a week. And I think I lost, it was something like 15 or 20% in, in like 10 days, you know? And that's another thing with correlation. If you were just to look at correlation of a bunch of different assets, if you're trend following and you're going long and short, you have to consider negative correlation to be a risk too, because you could be short one product, long another and then they both reverse at the same time. And then two seemingly negatively correlated uh, assets are affecting you negatively at the same time. Um, yeah, that's a great point because as trend followers, we're direction uh, agnostic. So yeah. something that's, that's strongly negatively correlated, we're likely to be in that, in that position short if the other one yeah. is long. So it's so it's two types of positions and you'll get into that. It's the same thing when thinking about currencies. Right. So the the euro dollar is and the order makes a difference. So it's dollars per euro. But then the dollar yen is based in yen per dollars. So the dollar is in a denominator in one and a numerator in the other. So if you run a simple correlation, those will be negative. But you need to flip those to make them positive because they have a same input into them. So that goes that goes along all of the the correlation analysis. When you look at the numbers, um, you can't get too quick with just using the numbers and then averaging them up and and things like that. You have to actually, and I don't know if they're you know systems that take this to a, into account that we're going with the trends. So these are actually or they're they're based in the dollar. Um, because I've never looked at them like that. I've just had to use sort of intuition and knowledge that you're going to be in these. So just consider that they're positive. It's also a it's also a good thing to be sort of more risk averse with it than than optimistic, since a positive correlation is going to hurt the numbers that we look at more than the negative. We want to see these negative ones, but uh, it should be real negative that we're using and not some faux or, or dreamed about negative that doesn't actually ever occur in practice, even though looking at a simple summary statistic, it says it is. So yeah. that's a great point on that. Yeah. I, I remember Robert Carver has um, a good section in his book, Systematic Trading, that describes how you um, 
can basically do a, cor a correlation analysis from the back test of your system. And that gives a little bit more meaningful um, weight to correlation when you actually look at how different instruments in your portfolio are correlated with your, with your signals that you're using. Mm -hmm. um, but it's complicated and it involves quite a bit of programming or coding because um, I don't think there's any kind of off-the-shelf packages that'll do it for you. You know, you basically have to have a back-testing engine that can analyze the correlation of your your individual trade return. So it's kind of a complicated process, but if anybody's interested, Systematic Trading by Robert Carver has a good um, section on that, and I have that on my list to go back and look at again. Um at some point in the future in the long list of things I have to work on with my, <laughs> with my trade system. So, yeah. And I'm, I just started that, that book maybe a month or two ago and I haven't gotten very far. And I know it was on, um, Jerry's sort of future to read, um, list as well, but you know, that list can get, uh, a little lengthy. Yeah. Have you um have you delved into the Jim Simons book yet? I have not. I've started listening to it. I got it on audiobook and I've been I'm probably halfway through it and it it is um it's great. It's one of the already I haven't finished it yet, but it's one of my favorite trading related books. It's really yeah, everyone's raving everyone's raving about it no matter what your um like philosophy and or beliefs are from a trading and investment perspective. Yeah, my biggest takeaway from just it, sort of inside the brainchild and and the lessons learned. Yeah, so these are all a bunch of like genius mathematicians, and what the biggest takeaway that I have from it is how often they all questioned whether what they were doing is right. Like, and it just goes to show how hard it is to follow a trading system. I mean, these guys are the smartest of the smart. They. They basically wrote the book on all of these mathematical techniques that they were using. They have every reason in the world to believe in what they're doing. And there's several instances in the book where they're talking about like just questioning whether they should keep doing, whether they should follow the system. And they like overrode the system. You know, it's just it's crazy. And it, it it's it's just so striking to me. Um how important it is to really understand what it is you're doing. So when things get tough, you're not questioning what you're doing and stop at the perfect, at the perfectly wrong time to do it. Right. right. When the end of the drawdowns there and you're like, I can't do this anymore. I don't believe in it. And then that's when it starts working again. So. Yeah. And that's what forced me to, to change my mindset or my position sizes because I was like, this volatility in this drawdown occurred and very few of the stops were hit. These are still open positions that are in a profitable position or they haven't hit a stop. So there's more pain to go if they all were to hit the stop. There's also more upside to go as well. Yet I'm in this 20% drawdown to 30% drawdown, whatever it may be. And the positions are still active, which means based on the rules that you've set up and your trading strategy, this is normal behavior for the asset. It didn't, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't some crazy move in a day or a week. <clears throat> it's just normal consolidation and retracement. And you've 
you've just set it up in a way that, you know, just normal behavior causes pain. So think about what happens when abnormal behavior um, can cause more pain, especially if it, you know, cuts into multiple assets. So yeah, a really big discussion to just read about, think about, even if you don't get very far sort of with numbers or quantifying things, it's a good, it's a good area to get theoretical about and just putting your mind to, to where you think the risks may be and just doing something about it or starting with it. And it'll take a while for any answers to likely come. It took me a while to just figure out where, where to even start to try to make a difference within just components of your portfolio. Yeah. I think if you're just starting out, the best thing to do is to really get, try not to think about things from just a stock centric way, like really think about the other asset classes that are out there and really try to include some of those because that's going to be the biggest, have the biggest impact in the trend following sense, just having those different return drivers in the portfolio right. along with your stocks. Yeah. And once you start trading all of them, they don't seem any different to each other. Like, you know, you don't feel like you're, I mean, you could still feel like you're missing out if you're not buying Tesla or Apple or whatever. Um, right. But you may get into milk and make a lot of money or coffee or oil or, you know, Bitcoin, whatever it is. So. Don't be scared to get a little weird with your portfolio. Yeah. And part of that mindset is it's not really about um, how much a specific trade or market makes to me. It's about when when it makes it. Even if a even if even if a position or a market doesn't make money or an individual trade doesn't make money, it may be because it went up and then came back down, so it was neutral. But the period that it went up may have had tremendous value uh, to the overall portfolio or to a subset of your portfolio to even out volatility. And so that's why even thinking about things that don't make money or strings of, you know, small winners to small losers or break even over the course of a year or two, those, those fluctuations up can have huge, huge impacts for the overall portfolio, even though the trade itself, um, you know, looks like nothing when you just isolate it in that aspect. And so that's when sort of the, the timing and the correlations and just embracing different markets. Um, you have to do that because that is at least you're giving yourself that opportunity to um, to do that with your account, to have something affecting the account in a positive way that you would never have that opportunity if you weren't looking at these other assets and asset classes. Yeah. What's been your biggest, um, what's been the biggest mover out of the currencies that you've seen this year? Like the, the lira probably? Um, the lira hasn't, I'd have to look at that because I don't track those that frequently. The lira had its big run up through like 17 and 18 and then it's just kind of been going sideways. Um, but like that on a weekly system is still in its long position yeah. from when it made its peak a year and a half ago because it hasn't fallen enough. So I think the 
like the slowest system on the year is still in like uh five to six year long yeah on the on the weekly chart um so yeah i mean i don't know the, the currencies overall to me have just been they've they've just been washing each other out it's been a lot of nothing um especially because the vol the moves have been long so like the euro and the aussie they've been just crawling down shorter and shorter but it's yeah. been the move has been has has occurred over such a long period of time without that much in terms of its volatility or ATRs that it's really uh, it's they're not really that that profitable because they're just they're just moving at such a slow pace. I mean, I guess the lower volatility is fine for not having to worry about it. They're just sitting there, but they're not moving up like um, like through 2017 when the euro pushed up higher. Um, yeah. I think I think the short euro against the dollar is running into a longer time frame than it was when it went up at this point and it's only done about two-thirds of the move um for reference so th things have just been crawling um the best ones have probably been the the crosses so against like the uh swedish corona and things like that those have been moving up for a while and all of those are sitting near all-time highs yeah. Sort of not doing much, but at least in a position where they've been <clears throat> moving up with some, with some force. Um, and isn't the, that great too? When you when people people know you're a trader and they talk to you about, they're like, oh yeah, you know, stocks have been doing really good, and you're like, oh yeah, I've made all my money on Swedish kroner. <laughs> like, take that. <laughs> yeah, I think the pound has actually been the best as of. As of late, those moves have been um, pretty sustained. Not even against the, not even against the dollar, but like the pound, uh, pound CAD, pound Swiss, things like that. The euro, euro pound has had good, good <clears throat> moves, really sustained good moves. But my, my, I think the biggest trade I've had since I started trading was Euro Swiss, and I don't trade it anymore. Um, just because when I when I finally went back and started weeding out markets because I was trading too many. I ended up getting rid of it. But um, yeah. the biggest trade I've had so far was Euro-Swiss, and I don't even remember which one I was long and which one I was short. Uh, but it was through most of 2018, and it's the biggest trade I've had. But it, it had a pretty substantial move. Um, but, yeah, my, my two biggest open trades right now are the uh, short short the Euro. And I've been short both of them for well over a year. 370 trading days for the euro and 387 days for the Aussie. So I've been short those for a year and a half. Yeah. The long euro Swiss trade that you're, you were long euro short Swiss. It pretty much went up from uh, March of 2017 all the way until uh, January of 2018. Yeah, and that's when every, that's when everything reversed. Was when in January of eighteen was when I had the big shock, and everything that I was it seemed like every trade I was in reversed at the same time. But yeah, yeah, that one's still been pretty decent. But yeah, these the the Aussie and the Euro they've been. I mean, you haven't had to do much with them, especially if you're long term. But they've just been they've just been creeping. They haven't been. Um, Tremendously profitable.
to me. Yeah. Based on based on ATR. Do you have especially when you compare it to like the moves in 2014 and 2015 when currencies currencies were great contributors 2014 and 15. Yeah. Especially dollar based ones because they had long long moves that were of good magnitude and it's just been suppressed hasn't really moved that much how how are you do you feel like you have more positions now than you've had in the past or are you down to fewer positions because i feel like there's less to me from the from my system there are a lot less active trends right now i think i have the least number of positions i've had um really since i started trading almost you know three years ago Um, it's a little, I mean, in just looking at the currencies, since I have those up in 30 positions and I trade four different time frames, so I could have, I could have 120, uh, unique things on there. I'm at one of, I'm at 106 of 120. So that's still pretty, uh, from the currency side. Um, but I know I track some of the, the futures and the commodities and, and I know a number of those have sort of recently hit stops. They've just been sort of going sideways the last four to seven weeks. So they haven't really triggered much. They've had sort of this push down, push up, push down, push up, sort of like this double bottom, double top. But they haven't been like yeah. 100 to 150 or even 200-day highs. They've been like 30-day highs, 40-day yeah. highs, things like that. Um, so I haven't encountered much of those on the on the currency side, but I see those on the – commodity since i still track them so yeah those ones i i track them as if i were to have positions and a bunch of those are sitting um flat even even in different ones like gold and oil across the four time frames like the, the shortest time frame might be in one and the longest time frame might be in but the middle two are sitting um flat because it's just been sort of consolidating uh, yeah in different time frames so yeah that kind of sounds like what the guys were talking about this weekend on top traders. It's kind of like just a lot of systems are getting flat, a lot of different stuff, and not much really going on. I know Niels has been talking about his trend barometer has been been at a really low level, and recently it was at the lowest level he's seen since he started tracking it. So it's um yeah. The thing that I can say is because I do keep track of. Like even though I would only have one overall position um, on an asset, I can see what the size of each position should be for the four time frames. So if the longer time frame is long and the shorter time frame is short, but the position on the longer one is larger than the shorter one when it was entered, then the net position mm-hmm. would be long. But I can see the size of both of those going up and sort of the number of markets that have some positions that are both long and both short to create the net right now, um, over two thirds of my positions have like two of the time frames long, two of the time frames short. So that would be an indication of like intermediate intermediate trend change and things like that. So things are maybe switching course. So that would lean towards what you're saying when you're flat. If you don't have um, multiple time frames and speeds, you can look at that. That as something is transitioning from short to long, you'd be making that transition on a net basis. So I do have a number of those that are like 
very few positions are like fully net in all four of the time frames. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a determiner of like trend strength or uh, trend length, things like that. Um, so very few are doing that, which that would agree with some of the things that you're saying that things are flat. They've come back into a, a retracement or, and they're just sort of sitting there. Yeah. Not doing anything. So that would confirm that even in the, uh, even in the currencies, 30 different markets there. The only fully positioned thing I have is the Euro CAD and the pound New Zealand. Those are the only two. There you go. Well, cool, yep. man. Well, we, we've hit our um, our usual 45 to 50 minute time uh, window here, <laughs> so I guess we can start to wrap it up. You have any final? Yeah, the bulk of the conversation was 30. Then we got into dev- uh, a deviation of topics, so at least the core content was 30 minutes. So I'm sticking with that. I gotcha. Well, <laughs> I think this is good. I want to do more kind of talking about recent recent events what's going on in our in our portfolios maybe even just a general sense just to kind of give people that aren't trading yet maybe just a feeling of what it's like and i I think that's helpful and then you know kind of tie that into into whatever the topic is that we want to talk about kind of like we did to tonight so i think we did a good job yeah a little bit of math a little bit of structure a little bit of theory yeah. A little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, right. let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Um, have next a good rest time. of the week. And uh, you guys all out there, have a good rest of the week. And we'll talk to you later. See ya.